0: Good morning, just in case you're wondering why I'm wearing tennis shoes, most of you think that, uh, well, you know I come from New Mexico, Albuquerque, you probably expected me to wear a Stetson hat and uh, boots, right, (laughs) cowboy boots, this is uh, official New Mexico attire, formal dress. No, not really. What happened is uh, when I packed to go to the Ukraine, I d- I'm on my way back home from the Ukraine, stopped off here in Telahoma. I got in Ukraine and the dress shoes that I packed were two different pairs, both right feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been teaching in uh, tennis shoes all last two weeks and here as well. Anyway, this morning we want to get into the book of Revelation, a book that is neglected by most Christians, and yet I consider it... Uh, oh, I guess I better put this thing in there, or it's not going to advance slides. Let's see if it works. Yep. Even though it's a neglected book by most Christians, even... I consider it uh, one of the most important books of all of the Bible. And hopefully the students, by the time we're done today, will agree. Uh, Maybe. Good. So we're going to take a look. Uh, We're just going to pick up where uh, we somewhat left off putting things together that we didn't quite get to in the class. And I somewhat uh, selected some things that would be a little bit uh, more appropriate for this morning. Now, somebody, I overheard two people talking about, uh, well, why did he select uh, the church at Laodicea? Does he think that we are lukewarm? (laughs) No, it just happens to be in the sequence, and uh, it was the one book that we didn't get to, and it was the one that we needed to cover, so that's the reason, so don't feel like I'm picking on you. We are actually uh, completing the course. This is actually session nine in the series of the first part of the book. And in this, we're dealing with a section of the book of Revelation that deals with the churches. And I view these seven churches using the analogy of a military officer that would stand before the troops And he's actually there for the purpose of an inspection. So he's looking them over carefully. And everyone's at attention, ready to be evaluated or assessed. And in the assessment, after it's completed, there will be a list of corrective measures. And that seems to be what we have in uh, these seven little letters. It seems like the Lord Jesus Christ... Is standing in the the midst of the churches, as it says in chapter 1, and he's basically reviewing each of the churches, and he's giving some complimentary words, but he's also pointing out the things that need correcting. He's issuing his complaints. So as he does that, he also offers uh, corrective measures, and he also warns them that he will be coming back soon. To uh, probably reevaluate and to see whether the corrective measures were taken. And in that, he gives some uh, promises, and also in some cases, he gives some threats. So that's kind of a general picture of what these little letters are all about. They have a unique structure, they're a little bit different than other letters in the Bible. And yet they share a lot of common characteristics. I think they were addressed to a particular situation in time, a particular circumstance. In fact, as we've looked at each of them, we've seen that each of the seven churches has a unique problem or issue or situation that uh, Jesus Christ is attempting to correct. For example, the church at Ephesus, he uh, says that they lost their first love. And I thought that what he's referring to there is they probably had orthodox teaching. In fact, there were a lot of positives at Ephesus, almost more so than probably any other church. But yet there was one thing and the loss of their love, probably their number one priority, their relationship with the Lord. They probably had their doctrine correct, but in terms of a relationship, they may have been lacking. Church of Smyrna was a suffering church. Most of it is, in fact, all of it is a positive report. They passed the inspection. The third one is Pergamum. It was a church that was highly compromised. So the Lord uh, deals with it. Thyatira was a church in apostasy. It had a, an apostate woman that seemed to be dominant in that uh, congregation. You're familiar with her name, at least, because you read of her in the Old Testament. Her name is Jezebel. There was a Jezebel in their midst. Then we saw Sardis. This is probably the worst of all of the churches. It's a dead church. Spiritual deadness. Philadelphia was one of the positive churches. It was a faithful church. And God promised them, or the Lord Jesus promised them, an open door of further opportunity So that's a summary of the six churches that we've looked at so far. And the church we want to look at today is, if you haven't already turned to Revelation chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, we'll work our way through it. And hopefully I can finish this morning on it. Since it's a class, I have the luxury of if I don't finish, (laughs) we'll just carry on uh, this afternoon. In verse 14, it says, and keep in mind, this is the Lord Jesus Christ that is speaking to each of the seven churches. So these are messages direct from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the Apostle Paul, not even the uh, Apostle John. These are directly from Christ himself. And he begins very interestingly with an address to an angel, he says, and to the angel of the church church. In Laodicea, right. Now, the way I understood this, um, using the analogy that I just gave you, this angel is something of a witness that is standing alongside of the commanding officer and he's making a record. He's uh, listing the issues that uh, the Lord is noting. And this inspection report will be handed out later on. And it seems like this angel is the witness that hears it all and records it. Now, I think John is also recording this because he's the one that is instructed to write the book and then to send it to the seven churches. So the angel is addressed. We won't talk anymore about that. We've interpreted these angels and I take it literally. Uh, let's jump right into the next part. Well, uh, before we get into that, let's take a look at a little bit of the circumstances in uh, the church at Laodicea. A little bit of the background in order to have a perspective of why Jesus selects some of the things that he selects to uh, comment on. I have a series of photographs that I will utilize. First of all, the location. We've already seen the six churches. Uh, that's Asia Minor. The letters be, uh, originate from a little island there. You can't probably read that, but that's the island of Patmos. That's mentioned in chapter 1. And as we've already mentioned, the letters go, first of all, from Ephesus to Smyrna. The next one in the list is Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, so Philadelphia. And then the one we're looking at is even further east and a little bit south uh, Laodicea that's the geography another uh, google map rendering of the location gives you a little more of a feel for the terrain there's Ephesus at the bottom then we have Smyrna again and Pergamum Thyatira Sardis Philadelphia and Laodicea so if you get out your map you have a good idea of where those cities are. They're they're relatively close. We talked about why selecting these. We won't go into that for the sake of time. But uh, there are a lot of archaeological remains that you can go if you visit today and see and kind of get a feel for what it was like to live in that area and perhaps a little bit of what uh, Jesus Christ is talking about in uh, this letter Uh, There's a river, the Lycus River, that goes at that time close to the city. And that's an ancient bridge. I believe it's dated uh, probably not to the first century, but uh, pretty ancient. Uh, These are artifacts that have been uncovered by archaeology, a bathhouse. They believe that's dated to the first century. So these are things that uh, people would have seen uh, in... uh, In the the church the people that lived in the city of Laodicea now most of the ruins are not reconstructed so you see a lot of what looks like rubble but uh, you have to appreciate that uh, these are two thousand years old and it's even a privilege just to see uh, the stones that are available there those are the remains of a gymnasium walls still standing just to give you a feel a visual Uh, Personally, it helps me uh, when I visited the sites, when I read uh, the names in the Bible. Now I have a visual picture. In other words, something just comes into my mind and I can think and I can kind of think in terms of where things are. Uh, So that's the purpose of kind of showing you these that might help you to visualize as you read the biblical text. Now, most of these artifacts would be dated back also to the first century. Typical of virtually every city of the ancient world are these Roman, actually Greek, theaters. This one is not as well preserved as the one that we saw at Ephesus. That one is a very nice one, and we uh, saw that the estimates that they make in terms of the seating was about 25,000. This one is a, probably a little bit smaller, maybe in the range of fifteen. I don't remember the numbers on this one. It's not as well preserved, but I think if you use a little bit of imagination, you can see that all of this was seeding. And then at the base, which is off the slide there, would be a platform or a, an area where all kinds of activities would be taken place. Public public uh, activities such as an oration or a political speech or a political gathering. Now, at Ephesus, and I showed that one, I'll just mention it just by way of analogy here. The one at Ephesus, if you read Acts 19, when Paul was being persecuted as a result of uh, the conversions that were having an effect on the economy there, they were going to rip him from limb to limb. And one of the places that they were doing this was in the theater, not this one, but the one at Ephesus. But it would be very similar to the one that you're viewing there. That one a uh, little bit more well, const- uh, well restored. So they were probably at that central bottom area and uh, deciding what they were going to do with Paul. In this case, uh, you would have not only political speeches, but uh, anything public, athletic events, those kinds of things. Just another shot of the same thing. This shows more of the seating towards the top. And the acoustics are amazing. Uh, in fact, at the one at Ephesus, uh, we, when I was there, we had uh, people at the bottom speaking just average uh, volume, seated uh, towards the top there, and you could hear fairly clearly. So... They built these, uh, they're well engineered in terms of acoustics, amazing actually, because obviously they didn't have microphones and speakers and that sort of thing. There's also a stadium, and this is one end of a stadium, the east end, that looks at it from the east to uh, the west there. And again, you need to kind of visualize along the the sides there, that would have been uh, seating More seating. Close up. If you can imagine just people sitting on those stones. One of them has an inscription. I'm not sure what it says. So that gives you a little feel for the site and some of the things that would have taken place there. Obviously, you see it was a city where athletic events were were, were held. Uh, it was uh, about... Fifty-seven miles southeast of that last city, Philadelphia, and about 108 miles from Ephesus. All of those would have been distances in the first century that people would have walked, obviously. So, people would have uh, traveled not by means that we have today. Uh, It was a wealthy city. It was in a fertile valley, so agriculture was a main Contributor to the economy, it was a had a medical center, it had a university, it had a library. It was famous for its production of ISAV. Now, I mentioned that because Jesus alludes to that and they would have, uh, this would have perked their ears and they would have uh, known that what Jesus is speaking of is directly applicable to them. So uh, another commercial item was black wool So garments were important to them. It was a banking center. Jesus is going to allude to that as well, buying gold. And like I said, all of these contributed to a materially wealthy city to live in. And uh, we'll see an allusion to that in the text as well. So that gives you a little feel for it in terms of background. So those are the what we would call the circumstances. Let's look at uh, each of the letters. Follow this pattern. And I'm using C's as kind of an uh, alliteration device. Uh, the correspondent, obviously, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in each of the letters, each little description that Jesus uses to describe himself, go back to chapter 1. And uh, in a moment, uh, this is part of the reason why I see this as one unit, chapters 1, 2, and 3 going together. I explained that structure before. So in the same verse, we also have Jesus describing himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Now, usually, the description not only is originating from chapter 1, but it usually has a very direct application to what's going to be said in terms of the content to that particular church. So let's kind of look at uh, each of these parts here. First of all, let's look at the Amen. And in fact, what we have are three divine titles and we've been noting that uh, most of what we have in the book of Revelation comes basically out of the Old Testament. So you have to have some familiarity with the Old Testament and go back and see where these titles come from. The first one is the Amen. And we, we don't think about it, but this is very, very significant. I think uh, what Jesus is conveying here is that he is making a claim basically to deity because God is the Amen. And what he's referring to here, in fact, the word basically has the concept of truth. Or, uh, in fact, Jesus in the Gospels—you've heard him say, "Truly, truly," in the Gospel of John. "Truly, truly, I say to this, another, say this." When he's saying that, you know, he is basically saying, "This is truth. This is verifiable. This you can count on. This is Amen." Truly, truly is just another way of translating Amen. Does that makes sense. So when he says that in the gospels, he's just saying to the audience that uh, this is truth. This this is dependable. This is what uh, you can stake your life on. And I think what he's making a claim here, he is the amen. He is the truth. He is absolute truth. Now, my background is in the sciences. Uh, My degree is in engineering, undergraduate, and I do a lot of creation stuff. And one thing that uh, obviously the sciences attempt to do is to find truth. And in our culture, we have elevated scientific truth so high that it almost, even though we live in a relativistic culture, our culture basically denies there's such a thing as absolute truth. Our culture says that the closest that you could come to absolute truth is scientific truth. Well, let's take a look at that because I think it has relevance not only to our culture and since we live in it, uh, it may help us to relate to those with perhaps technical backgrounds. So let me kind of take a little excursus, if you will, and let's talk about finding truth kind of quickly. The Bible encourages us, obviously, to find truth. And I know that all of you believe that the scriptures are the truth. Well, let's talk about this. How do you find truth? Well, scientific truth, what is it like? You need to know, especially in our culture, the nature of scientific truth. Because in our culture, it is almost elevated, as I said, to absolute truth. In fact, uh, when we speak of spiritual truth, our culture thinks of it as opinion. In other words, oh, okay, that's religion, that's opinion, uh, that's philosophical, that's not truth, that varies, that can change. Well, the opposite is actually true. Uh, Because our culture would say, if you really want to get down to truth, you want to be able to test it, you want to investigate it, you want to be able to uh, apply scientific concepts. Well, you need to be aware of this. Every scientist is aware of this. The common people generally are not. So this is why I'm giving it to you. It tries to be objective. And immediately, mankind is not objective. We have a hard time with objectivity. And if you dig deep down, you find out that even science fails to be totally objective. There is a bias in science. In fact, science Requires interpretation. You interpret data. And depending on your worldview, that worldview is going to sway the way you interpret data. So it's not always objective. Scientific truth is also done in present time. That's by definition. You have to be able to observe it. You have to be able to evaluate it. You have to be able to test it. So in reality, when you're dealing with issues of the past, you have to use, you have to modify some of your scientific approaches. You can scientifically evaluate the past, but you have to create a model that has some assumptions before you can interpret that data from the past. Okay? so this is a uh, an issue, particularly when you're dealing with things in the past like uh, creation or even historical events in the Bible. Scientific truth is not absolute. Now, our culture doesn't believe that it is either, but the closest, they would say, is scientific. Scientists acknowledge this. One of the best known uh, evolutionists, George uh, Gaylord Simpson, says the concept of truth in science is thus quite special. And what he means by special, it implies nothing eternal. And absolute, in other words, nothing absolute, but only, and I underline only, a high degree of confidence after adequate self-testing and self-correcting that scientific truth. Okay, so the concept of truth in science has these fundamental characteristics. It's not absolute. Next, it is tentative. <clears throat> Every scientist knows this. You get more data, you revise your conclusions. In fact, you uh, start with a theory, you test that theory. If it seems like it's valid, then others come along and do further tests on that theory. And as they v- validate what you have uh, come up with, it becomes now a theory, rather than just a hypothesis. Over time, as the whole community begins to test uh, more extensively, then it becomes law. Uh, it becomes law, and once it becomes law, then what happens? You can't overturn it. You can't revoke it. Well, historically, some scientific laws have been totally thrown out. So because it's scientific law, it doesn't necessarily make it truth. Science is tentative. Okay? Science is by consensus. In other words, what the scientific community, after testing, feels they have sufficient grounds to be able to call something truth. It's by consensus. In fact, this is admitted by another scientist by the name of David Day. In science, consistency of data interpretation. Notice, science interprets data. Your worldview is going to affect that interpretation. Constitutes proof. In science, consistency of data, interpretation constitutes proof. All right? That's scientific truth. There's one other little thing that we need to make sure of, and this is a huge one. Have any of you met a scientist that does not have a sin nature? (laughs) I'm yet to meet one. Science is not only tries to be, but cannot be objective, is limited in that it can uh, only evaluate the present with surety, is not absolute, changes over time, it's tentative, as you have more information, more data, then you revise your thinking in whatever area, whether it be biology or physics, it doesn't matter. It's by consensus what's agreed upon. Today, the so-called law, what is considered fact, is evolution. It's elevated to that position, but it's false. The bottom one here is science is done by what? It's from man. So if they don't have a sin nature, it has all of the weaknesses. Science has all of the weaknesses in spite of all of the checks and balances has all the weaknesses of man. Science is not absolute truth. We believe there is such a thing as absolute truth. So let's compare that. Let's contrast that. What would you need to have to have absolute truth? You'd have to have truth that is eternal. You'd have to have truth that is unchanging. In other words, more data is not going to affect it. In fact, the more data that you get, the more it's going to verify that truth because it's eternal. It's unchanging. That's, that's absolute truth. You also find out that absolute truth is unlimited. In other words, it's not limited to man. It's not limited to to the material realm. It's not limited in terms of any area of knowledge. Absolute truth is not limited. Absolute truth is a reflection of ultimate reality. Ultimate truth or absolute truth is perfect. Doesn't have errors. All science does. All scientific truth has errors because it comes from man. It's limited by that. Where does absolute truth come from, obviously? Absolute truth has to have an omniscient source. Somebody that has all of the truth. Somebody that knows all things. Somebody that is eternal. Somebody that is unchanging. Somebody that has no limits. It has to come from an infinite person. You know what Jesus is claiming here? Jesus is claiming to be absolute truth. He is the Amen. Here's absolute truth. God is true. John 6. That's absolute truth. The Father is absolute truth. Truth is personal. Truth is embodied in God. What did Jesus claim? Outside of even this little passage, Jesus says, I am what the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father except by me. Jesus is claiming to be absolute truth. The truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God is in him. He's eternal. And what is Colossians? What is it? Two eight, I believe. All the wisdom and knowledge is basically embodied in Jesus Christ. That's absolute truth. And if the father is true and the son claims to be truth, you would expect passages that speak of the spirit of truth. Right? And since the Bible is from the father, you would expect his word is truth. Jesus says, thy word is truth. That is absolute truth. Absolute truth is personal, is embodied by God himself, and he has revealed himself in his word, so we have absolute truth. And we can test this. If you compare what God says in any scientific realm, you should find conformity. And you can do that. In fact, that's what creation scientists attempt to do. Just to kind of complete our absolute truth here, the gospel is called the truth of the gospel. The gospel is absolute truth. That's why it has power to transform lives. That's why it has power to radically change a person that trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's absolute truth. So what's your starting point for any area? I, I just pulled this slide because I use it in... Uh, Science presentation. Well, the starting point should always be Scripture because that is absolute truth. No matter what area of study that you endeavor to pursue, you start with Scripture. I have friends that are world class scientists. That begin because they have a commitment to Scripture and they believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. They begin their science with Scripture and try to see what the Scriptures teach, in, regardless of the area, whether it be physics or astrophysics or geophysics. Doesn't matter. The two fellows that I have in mind, one of them is a geophysicist, another one is a physicist, and they both began their research in Scripture. That's the starting point. You should do the same thing with history. You do the same thing in any area of study. What does the scriptures teach? Because that's absolute truth. And when you do that, it it sets a framework to do good science. And what Jesus is saying right off the bat, we're not going to finish. We're just in verse one or verse 14. Right off the bat, what Jesus is saying is he is the amen. He is absolute truth. That's a divine title. What's the next thing he says? We'll have to go a little bit more rapidly, right? <laughs> Help me, Lindsay. <laughs> He's also the, the faithful and the true witness. Witness. Now, the book of Revelation is about judgment. That's probably a major theme, if not the major theme. Chapters 6 all the way, well, you could even include 4 and 5, but chapter, you'd even include 2 and 3 because we have disciplinary action that are dealt with in terms of the churches. So you might say the whole book is about judgment or at least some form of it. This qualifies him to be the judge. Because he knows all things. He has been faithful to truth. He knows all truth and he's a witness. He knows what has happened. He knows your heart. He has witnessed everything about us. This qualifies him to be the judge. It also says, or he says, he claims to be the beginning of the creation. That gives him supreme authority. He is the potter. He is the creator. He is the one that put all things together. Colossians 1. Both visible and invisible, he is supreme authority. Now he's speaking to a church. That was a lot very fuzzy on the truth. He's speaking to a church that was neither faithful nor true. He's speaking to a church that had lost sight of biblical concepts. So he addresses them appropriately saying, I am the truth. I am the Amen. Now, beginning in verse 15, let's look at it. 14 is the Correspondent. There's no compliment in the pattern of all of the churches. There are only two where Jesus does not offer words of compliment. There's none. Every one of them, he begins, for example, uh, just look at, for example, the last one. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, uh, skip to verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut Etc. behold, etc. Well, I guess verse 8 is the compliment. There's no compliment to the church at Laodicea. What other church is there no compliment that you would expect from that list? Remember which one of them is dead? Church at Sardis. That's the only other one that doesn't have a compliment. Uh, this is a pattern that uh, these letters are structured around. Uh, this one does not have a compliment. So it jumps right into the complaint. That would be uh, verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds. Now, most of them begin that way. I know your deeds. In other words, I know your ministries. I know all about how you function. I know what you do. I know all those areas that uh, you endeavor to pursue as a church. And then I think he gets specific that you are neither, in this case, there's some negative things. Usually when he says, I know your deeds, there's some positive things. In this case, there's no compliment. So it goes right into the negative. That you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. Now, I think what he's saying here, he's not saying this idea of hot. I don't think he's saying, he's contrasting a positive with a negative. I think both are negative. Uh, Uh, Just think about it for a while. Well, let me give you some more slides here to give you a little bit more background. And then I'll comment on that. Uh, Laodicea was between two other, in fact, more important cities. You you might have expected that Jesus might have selected even Colossae. We have a letter of the New Testament from Colossae. This was a much more important church. Uh, Even Hierapolis was probably more important than Laodicea. Uh, We won't get into the reasons why that was chosen. But anyway, at Hierapolis, uh, see those little white things there? Those are not clouds. These are clouds, but these are not. Uh, See where Colossi is? It's at the foot of uh, a mountain. And out of this mountain came springs of very, very sweet, cold water. Very, very good tasting water. Hierapolis uh, apparently is over... uh, an area with volcanic action underneath, it, it's got hot springs. And let me show you what the the water does up there. Well, that's just a, another... That's a better preserved theater. This is Hierapolis. Uh, a lot of them in the, the ancient world look like that. And you can see the platform on that one. This is what uh, the hot springs produce. This is the... I uh, can't remember the chemical that basically... Leaches out of the water and it forms these formations. This is Hierapolis. So, out of the hot springs, oh, it's calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate formations from the hot mineral springs. Uh, They're nice to kind of bathe in. The water's hot. The problem is Laodicea did not have a good water source. It depended on a water source either from Colossae or it uh, depended on a water source from the hot springs. There's another shot of that. The springs at night or it's sunset. Calcium carbonate. Also on the site are these pieces of aqueducts. So they would uh, transport water from either Hierapolis or from Colossi. What would happen on, on the way? Those nice, cold waters from Colossae when it got to Laodicea, what happens? No longer cold, right? Waters coming from uh, Hierapolis, hot, steaming by the time it got to uh, Laodicea, no longer hot. Well, on a hot summer day, how do you like your lemonade? (laughs) You put ice in it, right? Uh, You don't want it lukewarm. What do you do when you get up in the morning and you, uh, some of you drink coffee. I don't. Uh, Those of you that drink coffee, uh, once it gets lukewarm, you don't want it anymore, right? That's what he's saying here. Uh, I wish you were, I wish that uh, you're, he didn't want them to be either hot or cold, or he wants them to be hot or cold. He doesn't want them to be lukewarm. So I think that's the image that we have here. Uh, Just more pieces of the aqueduct. Or more than one aqueduct. Pipes with calcium. All of that is on site. So the problem that he evaluates here, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I prefer, or he says, I would, that you were cold or hot. Either one. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will, what does it say, spit you out of my mouth? In the Greek text, it's actually, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is, a—it's—it's uh, it's, uh, what's the word? It's nauseating to the Lord Jesus Christ. A lukewarm condition is a nauseating condition. That's the condition at this church. If we can summarize what he means, it's a self-satisfied church. In other words, they're they're satisfied with where they're at spiritually. They're not interested in growing. I mentioned to our group uh, during the week that anything that is living is either growing. If you think of a plant or even a pet or anything, anything that is living is either growing or what? Or dying. There's no in-between. So a self-satisfied, oops, that was, a self-satisfied church is not growing. It may be self-satisfied, but in fact, it is in decline. Uh, a half, half-hearted attitude in terms of a Christian walk or a half-hearted attitude in terms of a commitment, uh, that's what lukewarm is. Complacency, not willing to apply Scripture, even compromised. Indifferent to real issues. Uh, there's some people that uh, are in the church that I go to. You can't carry a spiritual conversation with them. I mean, you just... they just There's no content there to talk to them about it. Uh, they're indifferent to spiritual things. They're lukewarm. Another word the Bible uses is just carnal. In other words, they're, they're not... Filled with the spirit. That's lukewarmness. Uh, If you want to use a more visual word, spiritually fat or obese or flabby, whatever you want to describe it. Neutral. Neither hot nor cold. That's the complaint. What's the correction? Verses 17 through 19. (coughs) Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. This is their attitude. In other words, they're focused on their materialistic success, their, uh, their materialistic possessions. I am rich. They probably had nice homes. They had money in the bank, probably investments. Had no needs, full cabinets full of clothes, full pantries full of food. What does Jesus evaluate that in this inspection report? You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you, verse 18, to buy from me gold refined by fire. Well, how are they supposed to buy if they are poor, if they have no resources in reality? Because the money that they have is not going to buy what Jesus is talking about. How do they buy? Well, I think the implication is that everything that we get is by grace. We buy freely I advise you to buy from me. When we buy from God, it's appropriating what he has already provided for us. Because we have no resources to buy. He's already called them in uh, the first part there. He's already evaluated them in, in verse 17 as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So they have no resources to buy anything. So everything is by grace. Now, this was a banking center, so gold was common in this city. In fact, people probably had gold in in their own possession. And he is saying, you need to buy the real gold. In other words, that gold that doesn't perish, that gold that can't be stolen. Not only that, uh, well, he says that you may become rich. And this was a center of wool production. So this would awaken them and make them think, well, you know, we've got all these garments in our closet. Jesus says, you may clothe that you may garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And the industry and another major industry was the eye salve industry industry. And here he says, I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. They're blind. They need, eyesight said, from here. They, they need illumination. They need the Lord to open their eyes to be able to see and not be complacent to truth, not be indifferent to spiritual things, but they, they may be able to see things that are clearly revealed in Scripture. And then notice 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. This is a biblical concept. If a person is a believer and he is lukewarm, he's in danger of discipline. Or even if he's overtly disobedient, there's discipline. That's, this is Hebrews 12. Jesus is acknowledging his love for them. This reason this church was selected is that he may be able to perhaps correct The situation that they're finding themselves in. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and most of the letters is a call to repent of the things that is the problem. So he wants them to be zealous. This is the opposite of lukewarmness. That's a correction. Every one of the letters ends with a challenge. And we have an extended challenge here. Verses 20 through 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, typically this verse is used in a context of evangelism, but uh, there are several reasons in the text that I don't think it deals with evangelism at all. Uh, For one, verse 19, he's implying a relationship there of love, and he's also talking about reproving and discipline. This is things that the Lord does with the believer. I think the imagery imagery here, in fact, there's no indication in uh, the letter that he's dealing with unbelievers. He's dealing with a church that is complacent, a church that uh, is lukewarm. He desires it not to be lukewarm, but that's the condition of the church. This is a carnal church. This, This is not an unbelieving church. It's cardinal enough that he's standing outside. In other words, they're not having fellowship with him. He is outside. He is is separate. They need to confess sin. So he stands at the door and is knocking for entrance that he may have fellowship. Not that he may enter into their experience for the very first time. And if anyone hears his voice, in other words, if they're sensitive to spiritual things, if they've overcome a slight amount of complacency and opens the door, he will surely come in. He will come in. And notice he says, and will dine with him and he with me. Now, in the book of Revelation, we're, we're dealing with issues of consummation. We're dealing with issues of final judgments. All kinds of judgments that are final, final judgments for angels, final judgments of mankind, final judgments on the earth, final judgments of even Satan himself, final judgment of all unbelievers. So it's dealing with consummations. It's also dealing with the positive things. It's dealing with the kingdom and everything is leading up to the coming of the Lord when he will establish the kingdom. And I think what he's inviting them here and almost giving them a sense of urgency, I'm already at the door knocking in terms of his return. Most of the other letters, he, he promises that he will come. He's going to return and basically uh, deal with whether they made the changes that he advised them to change. And I think this follows that same pattern. And in that context, it's almost like he's almost at the door. He's he's almost uh, there to come. And when he comes, what is he going to do? He's going to establish the, the kingdom. This is an invitation. In fact, the kingdom, some of the images of the kingdom are this uh, this fabulous feast, this fabulous banquet. Some of the parables that Jesus uses. He uses that very imagery. That's 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 the kingdom. So he is saying, and we've been saying all along, that how we live now is very, very important because it will determine our place in the kingdom. It will also determine probably our fellowship, the the level of fellowship. It, it's hard to speculate and to think because we, we it's hard to imagine how things are going to be so different. Uh, the scriptures give us a lot of detail, but it, it's still difficult. But in that thought, uh, I think the context of verse 21, or 20 rather, is... This invitation of fellowship and in the Hebrew culture, uh, eating a meal together was also kind of representative and was a image of fellowship. So he wants them to repent that they may have fellowship. And it's an invitation, I think. Now, there's other views, but I think the best view for the sake of time is the view that this is an invitation to be able to participate, because all of the other churches have promises that uh, pertain primarily to the millennial kingdom. And I think this is no exception. So it's an invitation to be prepared so that when he returns, they will have fellowship with him. Verse 21, he who overcomes, now here's a further promise, more incentive, he who overcomes, I will grant to him, same context, we're talking about the kingdom, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. He will rule during the kingdom. He is the messianic king. That's what this book is all about. Book of Revelation. Him coming back to judge and to rule. And he's promising a co-rulership if, in fact, they repent. He who overcomes, uh, we talked a lot about overcomers. It's basically overcoming the things that are obstacles in our life in terms of spiritual walk. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, and I also, will over, I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We talked about the throne or uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, that's the focus of chapter 4. In fact, it kind of introduces us to chapter 4. We, we looked at chapter 4 in the Revelation class. Uh, so here it kind of hints at what's coming up next. And then he concludes with a kind of a broad call, if you will. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, He's calling upon them to hear. And notice it's to the churches again. Plural. We made a big point of that. The whole book of Revelation is written to all of the churches. Not just... The the churches didn't just receive these little letters. In other words, the church at Leodicea didn't simply get... How many verses? Uh, From 14 to 22. They got the whole book. And this is consistent in the Book of Revelation. So that's pretty much the letter to our list of seven. Now we can add the main problem here that Jesus is trying to correct is this issue of lukewarmness. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we praise you that you in fact do love us. We praise you that you love us so much that uh, you will discipline if need be. And father, we uh, we we know that uh, you will bring whatever is appropriate for us as individuals or even as a church. Uh, We desire to not be lukewarm. We desire to be zealous as you encourage. Uh, We also praise you for what you have revealed in this book and what you revealed uh, in terms of what you have for us in the future. And just all of the magnificent things and the promises that are offered to each of these seven churches. We praise you that all of those promises are applicable to us as well. If we will, in fact, uh, appropriate what you have provided for us. So we just thank you and praise you and desire to worship you today. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.